Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mercedes Stevenson from Global News on the United States calling on Canada to pay our fair share in keeping up NATO. Redmond Shannon joined us from London on Prince Andrew giving up his royal duties. From the Indian Resource Council, CEO Stephen Buffalo and the new Natural Resources Minister federally, and Matthew Fisher with his suggestions on what the new Foreign Affairs Minister should be doing about China. And Jane Gerster, Global News online reporter on the 30th anniversary of the mass murder of women at a Montreal university. How much safer are women in Canada 30 years later? Mercedes Stevenson is the Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the network flagship public affairs program, The West Block. And she joins us on The Roy Green Show. Mercedes, thanks for the time. So the United States, this is being officially critical of Canada, re-our NATO commitment. That's right. So uh, I have multiple sources who have told me that uh, the government has received a letter here in Ottawa. In fact, it was delivered to the Department of National Defense. Uh, expressing concern and frustration with Canada's current defense spending. It's an official letter from the U.S. government, and that's unusual. Uh, and I've had multiple sources tell me that this is this is an escalation. It's an escalation in the rhetoric. It's an escalation in the United States' frustration. Uh, one source was telling me that, um, this is a Canadian source, and I've heard it from more than one American source, their number one priority in terms of their relationship with Canada is to get Canada to spend more on defense right now. That's number one on their agenda. Uh, and it fits with a larger pattern that they have been uh, cajoling, pushing, encouraging, asking, begging, pleading, pushing, allies to spend more on defense. There is real concern, in particular when it comes to Canada, around our capabilities in the Arctic and whether or not we are able to actually defend that. Um, I was in a media roundtable with Robert O'Brien, who is the President's National Security Advisor yesterday, and I asked him about NATO spending, and he said they are deeply concerned about Canada's Arctic, that they believe it's going to be the next essentially front uh, where people are trying to claim territory, that the Russian and the Chinese are active up there, but Canada is not nearly active enough. So that is one place the U.S. would certainly like to see defense spending increase. They have asked over and over again, and it's not just this administration, by the way, uh, President Obama, when he was here in the House of Commons, said that NATO needs more Canada. Uh, These are successive American administrations, successive NATO secretary generals, who have called upon the alliance to shoulder a greater burden, who have called specifically upon Canada to shoulder a greater burden, and they're not happy with Canada's progress. To be fair to the Trudeau government, they have increased defense spending. They're at 1.27% of GDP, but the amount that we committed to in 2014 to getting to is that NATO threshold of 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, we rank about sixth in NATO right now in terms of our spending, but with all that's going on around the world, and as a long-term ask, both NATO and the United States they're saying, look, Canada, uh, you've got to share more of the burden. You've got to spend more money on defense. Yeah, and that doesn't mean buying $500 million worth of old Australian jet fighters. But anyway, that's just a personal comment. Uh, Canada can't be compelled to pay uh, what we said we would, right? But there are consequences, it appears. Now, if we don't, are the Americans saying there will be consequences for you uh, in internationally, domestically, somehow? They've certainly put pressure on. I don't know whether or not they've said there'll be a consequence, but there's a very clear pattern here Mm -hmm. that they've been getting more aggressive. Uh, not just with Canada, but especially with Canada, because they're frustrated and, and concerned. And as the National Security Advisor said, look, you're right next door to us. 
So if your Arctic is open, that starts to make us worry. And that's sort of interesting in the long-term look at defense, Roy, because that's where NORAD came from. The North American Aerospace Defense Command came about during the Cold War when the Canadian government got really nervous about how the Americans were eyeing our airspace, saying, I don't know, can you defend it? Maybe we need to defend it for you. So the idea was you, you get uh, a command with the Americans where you have equal amounts of command and control, uh, but you don't have to put in as much money, and that starts to ease their mind about our capabilities. In terms of sovereignty, that's a major issue for Canada. What, what the Canadian government does not want is the Americans sailing around in the Arctic, uh, the Chinese, the Russians doing that, and, and us losing control. And this is the Americans very bluntly saying, if you want to keep control of the Arctic, you better start putting your money where your mouth is. And yesterday, uh, not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense, the National Security Advisor said, great to see that you're building these Arctic patrol ships, but uh, you're not armoring them. Now, he doesn't mean literally put armor on them, but he's saying you need a more um, substantial military presence that's capable of being a military up in the north. So this sort of all fits, but it's, it's starting to really amplify much more than we've seen it do so before. Um, sending this letter as an official diplomatic signal, it might sound minor to your listeners because I think it's just a letter, but it's actually a very formal way of expressing your frustration, mm-hmm. and it's not at all common. So that tells you they're very serious. You know, Mercedes, I was just thinking about the fact that the French president has, a few few weeks ago, declared NATO, quote, brain dead. And, and, and the, he's calling for a European force, that, uh, or a European army. And, and I'm just wondering whether all of these developments and the fact that in 2018 only eight of the 29 member states paid the 2% of GDP they were supposed to. When you put all of this together, is, is the United States saying to Canada, and maybe you just said this, that our focus is now going to be increasingly North America, play your part, Canada? Yeah, absolutely. They're they're worried about North America, and what they're really worried about is the Russians and the Chinese. But right. versus uh, not worried about them in Ukraine, not worried about you know the the Chinese influence in the South China Sea. Those are concerns, but they're starting to see increased activity in Canada's Arctic, and that's where they get concerned because of course they have Alaska up there, and because they're just worried about that presence and, yeah. and the resources that one day will be available. We know parts of the Arctic have been melting, and if that continues, it opens it up to be easier to sail in. It also means there's a lot of resources up there that people might want to extract, and that starts to make it more and more valuable, and we really don't have a significant military capability that can operate in the north. Thank you so much for joining us, Mercedes Stevenson, and once again, uh, you lead the nation with the stories that matter to all of us in Canada. Thanks. Great talking to you, Mercedes. Thanks for having me, Roy. Mercedes Stevenson, she's the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and the host of The West Block. Redmond Shannon joins us, Global News. Uh, he joins us in, in London. Uh, Redmond, thank you very much for taking the time. What's the reaction been in the UK to Andrew's presentation with his BBC interview and then subsequently what's gone on over the last several days? I think it's uh, similar to what you've been um, saying yourself, Roy, is, and what people are saying around the world is that it was an absolute car crash and a disaster of an interview. That is, you'll, it'll be, it's difficult to find anyone who would say otherwise, uh, but reportedly uh, Prince Andrew himself thought after it was done and filmed and recorded with the BBC that it went quite well. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's what we understand was his... Uh, belief um, but he would be alone in believing that and certainly you can't imagine that he believes that now given that four days after that interview aired he of course released that statement withdrawing from public life stepping aside from his royal duties it said um, with the blessing uh, of the queen now 
whether or not it was his idea or in fact whether or not it was the queen's idea and he had no choice in the matter well that is um up for debate but one imagines that the queen would have been very very disturbed with the fallout from that interview and the pillorying of her son prince andrew and probably with the questions that he gave to the uh, the answers he gave rather to the questions particularly his relationship with jeffrey epstein and the allegation that uh, Virginia Roberts uh, Jeffrey uh, was forced to have sex with him when she was just 17 years old. People just over here, as they are around the world, just uh, are not buying the answers he gave to those questions. They don't seem to add up. Do we know why he submitted to the interview? I be- like There are different theories. Uh, one imagines that he would have thought that he could have drawn a line under this. There was a lot of being said about it, obviously not as much as there is now. He thought he could give answers that would um, have satisfied people, but they, it did, in fact, the, the exact opposite. His, um, his uh, daughter, um, Princess Beatrice, is uh, getting married soon, and um, perhaps it was to wash away the scandal before that uh, marriage in the coming months but uh, obviously it has done anything but that and uh, he is deeper in this than one can can ever imagine because he you know has withdrawn from public life he has stepped aside his patronages of uh, dozens scores of charities here in the UK so many members of the royal family uh, here in the UK are patrons of hundreds of charities um, and it's great for charities to have a royal name on their books to say such and such is a patron certainly you'd like to say it about people like Prince Harry draws a lot of positive attention but right now I don't think any charity and obviously no charity wants to say Prince Andrew is their patron because it simply put is not a good look I don't remember the last time this happened to the, uh, or within, inside the British royal family, where such drastic action was taken by a senior member of the royal family, such as Andrew's taken, and that is to uh, remove himself from all official duties. And you, as you say, was it his decision? Was it the decision of the Queen? Who knows? But it, but it's it's highly unusual, isn't it? It is. Of course, his father, the Duke of Edinburgh, um, Prince Philip, has withdrawn from public life in the last few years, but only because he is in his late 90s. So that was simply a matter of age. And uh, you can imagine that traveling around the world, traveling around the UK when you are that age um, is very tiring. Um, And uh, it is understandable that uh, he has um, uh, withdrawn from public life. So that's a very understandable reason. But in modern times, for a scandal, for a story like this to be the reason, for for um this to happen that it is unprecedented in modern times in the royal family no one uh, is aware of anything similar and certainly in the modern era with so much press scrutiny on the royals um it uh, it really has blown up and it's probably one of the biggest stories to hit the royal family in a negative way one would say I suppose, since the perhaps since the, the death of Princess Diana in 1997. Mm-hmm. Instead of closing down the issue, as you, I think, correctly suggested, that that's what he wanted to do with the interview, he's now opened up additional and new questions about himself. Is there, um, under British law, is there now opportunity for a criminal investigation of Prince Andrew to take place? Well, I think it's probably more a matter um, that the for the FBI, um, uh, because uh, many of the accusers 
of uh, Jeffrey Epstein are in the United States, like Virginia Roberts, uh, Jeffrey, who I must uh, point out is going to speak to the same program uh, on the BBC right. in next week on December 2nd. So that will be very interesting to see what she has to say. But it's um, her lawyer, Gloria Allred, has uh, said that, uh, or they, she, Laurie Allred, being a lawyer who's representing many of the accusers against Jeffrey Epstein, wants to see Prince Andrew speak to the FBI. There is another lawyer representing other alleged victims of Jeffrey Epstein who says she would be willing to submit a subpoena to the prince to get him to speak to the FBI. Whether or not uh, that will happen, we don't know, but he did suggest in that press release last week that he would be willing to speak to law enforcement authorities. Whether or not he would travel to the US is another question because that could be tricky if potentially he would face charges. He might find it difficult to get back into or to leave the US. So um, it would be a tricky thing, but if the FBI looked to speak to him, it would be very difficult for him to say no right now. Mm -hmm. And one imagines that is probably uh, something the FBI might be looking into because he could hold the key answers to some tricky questions. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's uh, this case is, has so many angles to it now that have just that are developing. We have the two prison guards uh, who have been uh, indicted by a grand jury. One of them has said she'll cooperate fully with the FBI. And uh, former United States uh, attorney, government attorney, uh, said you have to keep your mind open as to all possibilities uh, for on how uh, Epstein died. And, uh, and everything else that's going on in this particular case. Red, thank you very much for the time. It's, uh, it's an ugly story, but it's, it's, it's a positive thing that it's, that it's coming out in the open, that, that it's being discussed, being debated, being talked about, and being investigated. Yes, you're welcome, Roy. It's certainly not over yet. No. Have a great day. All the best. Redmond Shannon joining us from uh, London on the story of Prince Andrew stepping away from all of his duties. Let's come back to the issue of politics, Western Canada, and the realities of the energy reserves we have and what we're not doing with them that we ought to be doing with them. How does the Indian Resource Council view the responsibility of the newly reduced to minority status federal liberal government? How does the IRC view the appointment of Seamus O'Regan as federal minister of natural resources, and what must he do? Stephen Buffalo is the president and CEO of IRC, which was founded in 1987 by chiefs representing the oil and gas producing First Nations. Stephen, good to have you back on the program. How are you? Hello, Stephen. Are you there? Yeah. How can are you? Hear you? Me? Yeah, I can hear you good. How are you? I'm, good. I'm very good. You know, uh, we got the great cup here in Calgary. So things are getting ready to, to to get really busy again. So. Yeah, it's a great day. It's a great day for the CFL. It's a great day for Canada for football. We're all football fans, and this is the right time of year to do it. And the weather's going to be pretty decent for a football game. Oh, for sure. You know, for sure. We have friends from out of town coming in. You know, it's a very exciting time for the city given the uh, current economy. You know, and, and we just want to have a good time and, and, and celebrate one of Canada's famous games here, the Great Cup. Yeah. And I understand some $40 million is going to be injected into the Calgary economy because of the Great Cup with all of the activity and the tourists coming in for the game and so on. $40 million bucks. That's a good good amount of cash for a few days. Definitely well needed, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the issue of uh, the IRC and natural resources and First Nations that have 
natural gas and oil on their land and what needs to be done with that uh, with that oil and gas, the natural energy resources that these First Nations have. First of all, can you just define for us, please, what's the objective of the IRC? What do you what what fundamentally what do you want to get done? Well, you know, to the IRC, we've been advocating on behalf of First Nations that have oil and gas, and and and, in, and essentially it spilled over to a number of other things such as pipeline. So when when legislation was created recently, like Bill C sixty nine and C forty eight. Of course, you know, those are very uh, uh, bills that affect our, our, our play in oil and gas. And as, as we've seen, you know, the price of oil went down. You know what? I want to tell the listeners, First Nations that have oil and gas are not oil tycoon communities. They're, they're not. You know, they're just, they, they suffer just as much poverty as the next. And, and you know, the, the oil and gas that they receive in royalties is controlled by the government. We have to apply for our own money to get that oil and gas revenue back into our communities. So the, the, the Ministry of the Indian Affairs still has to give us the okay that we can use our money for whatever we might need. So I want to tell the listeners, you don't just get oil money directly right from the company. It's still government control, and, and it, it's, 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 uh, we have to apply for our money. It doesn't make sense. But, uh, you know, we still advocate on that part, and uh, we, we still want to continue to, to work with government, work with industry, to ensure that, you know, we, we can uh, utilize this, this resource for our communities. Yeah. So now we have a new reduced-in-numbers minority liberal government, and there's a new natural resources minister, Seamus O'Regan, and uh, Sonia Savage, the uh, energy minister for Alberta, um, has said that she was encouraged by her meeting with Mr. O'Regan, I think maybe the Liberals are a little more humbled about uh, dealing with Western Canada now and the Prairie Provinces, particularly following the election. But are you aware? Do, what What do you know about O'Regan, and and uh, what what do you want the new Natural Resources Minister to specifically get at? Well, obviously, you know our, our communities want to have a say. You know, our membership want to have a say with them. And, and, you know, as far as I know, Mr. Regan is from uh, Eastern Province, Newfoundland, you know, and, and of course they have some offshore oil and gas out there. So he, he must realize the importance of this resource for Canada. You know, you, you talk about the topic that you just talked about earlier in the opioid, opioid crisis, you know, that's a social program. And, and the government needs to fund that type of programming. And, and uh, the way they do that, well, we need oil and gas to start booming again. You know, to, to to have those equalization payments, those transfer payments to Ottawa, so we can address some of those issues. And I hope that he has an open mind to looking at Bill C sixty nine and C forty eight, considering you know the ocean traffic tanker traffic that's in eastern Canada versus western Canada. That's right. Well, he is from eastern Canada, as you say. He's from Newfoundland and Labrador, and in eastern Canada, there is no restriction. There is nothing to stop the uh, oil tankers from doing their business and arriving on the east coast of Canada. There's nothing uh, similar to what what the reality is on the west coast, and uh, Mr. O'Regan uh, needs to address that. Absolutely. You know, uh, we, we see now a shortage of uh, natural gas propane in, in Quebec. You know, <laughs> well, let's start laying a pipeline, and then maybe we can twin it with uh, something else. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 almost poetic in a in, in an odd way that you have the premier of Quebec who is railing against pipelines from from the west crossing through the the province of Quebec 
And then the next thing he's doing is saying, we only have a few days of propane supply left. What are we going to do? Well, as Jason Kenney correctly said, the answer is right in front of you. Pipelines. Absolutely. You know, a lot of smart people are so dead set against the uh, pipeline. It, it, it makes me uh, makes me really wonder. But, uh, you know, as I regulate, regulations here in Canada, you know, for pipeline uh, monitoring is, is world class. You know, the, uh, we, we do it right here in Canada. Yeah, Stephen, the IRC supports uh, Trans Mountain Extension, right? Absolutely. You know, we, we, we need a uh, uh, we need that infrastructure, uh, and hopefully the the price of oil goes up with it. And I know there's issues of uh, First Nation ownership, and uh, we're trying to work with whoever that needs that assistance to ensure that you know we we, we make sure that uh, the pipeline gets done. And that maybe there's possibility of indigenous ownership. Is there uh, increased cooperation between different First Nations on the uh, overall issue and question of uh, energy resources and and pipelines and transportation of the resources by the use of pipelines? Is there more cooperation? More is there discussion taking place between well, between between First Nations who are very much in favor and First Nations or that aren't? Um, I, I think that dialogue is continuing to grow. You know, as you just re- recently saw, there was two First Nations that uh, are not that dropped out of the litigation against to stop the uh, pipeline from being built, and and you know that's kind of promising, and and as long as some the the continued dialogue with those communities that along the corridor are continually uh, the communications there, and that the needs are met and the issues are met, I, I think that you'll see a greater need need for it. You know, again, the, the business opportunity that's presented with this infrastructure is tremendous, yep. and, and we can't deny that. And, and I think, you know, uh, despite the fact that there might be a, a huge environmental push on the West Coast, <laughs> the, the reality is that, you know, we, we can't just turn off this fossil fuel, uh, get off fossil fuels and get into the electricity today. You know, uh, every day, no. Joe Canadian might be able to do it in a month, but First Nations, we can't do that. It's just virtually impossible. The cost is enormous yeah. to jump to that. So we, we need this, you know, and uh, as, as we go forward, you know, there's been three groups that have been identified on ownership, and I'm hoping that they can come together, find some common ground, and, and more or less unite All right. so that uh, we're, we're not fighting about it and watching this opportunity go by. Okay, one more quick question. We only have a few seconds. Have you heard from uh, Mr. O'Regan's office at all? Have they expressed any interest in meeting with you? No, not yet, but I'll be definitely reaching out to him, you know, uh, and, and as well, Minister Savage here in the province, and, and continue to work with them and, and create some more dialogue, because it's important that we all communicate. Great talking to you again, Stephen. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Roy. Stephen Buffalo is the president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council, First Nations that have um, natural gas and, and oil on their land. Doesn't it drive you just mad? And I've said this before, and it just bears saying again. We put two men on the moon 50 years ago. The entire computing capability of Apollo 11 didn't even begin to approach the computing capability and strength of your average smartphone. And yet here we have all smartphones all over the world. Everybody's talking into them. You can't walk five feet without bumping into somebody who's distracted by their phone. And we still can't get the things to be reliable for sound. What is that about? What is that about? All right, so when it comes to China, 
the uh, international giant, a global news online commentary. The headline is, Canada's new foreign minister must figure out how to deal with China. And it's written by Matthew Fisher, international affairs columnist and foreign correspondent who's worked abroad for 35 years. On Twitter, it's at M. Fisher Overseas. And Matthew joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Matthew, good to talk to you again. Well, thank you, and thank you for the plug, Roy. Well, you're more than welcome. Um, I, I enjoy your Twitter feeds. I enjoy what you write. Actually, I learn from what you write. And uh, this, this China issue is, is fascinating because you start in your, in your commentary, China is going to be dominating or being one of the dominating factors for any Canadian government for the balance of the century. And now here we have a new Chinese ambassador come to Canada already warning us not to follow the lead of the United States Senate and pass any legislation which would favor the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. So uh, the new ambassador arrives on the scene and right away telling us what to do. Well, it's sort of like the old ambassador who called Canada a nation of racists, uh, somehow connected to the detention of the Huawei uh, woman executive, uh, Miss, uh, or Ms. Meng, and uh, how that's connected to racism really is a head-scratcher to me. But, uh, but uh, it seems the new ambassador, there were hopes he would be more polite and civil, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, in the last few years, not only in Canada, but in a lot of countries, where China has been speaking much more uh, roughly than it ever did before. It uses undiplomatic language and sort of threatens. And that's what they're doing with Canada. I think there's a good consensus growing in the West that Canada is the weakest link when it comes to China, that we are the most willing to obey ourselves and, and make any kind of deal to get some trade from China. Uh, other countries, such as Australia, uh, are now much more leery than they were before. Uh, European countries are generally more leery. In the United States, despite what you <laughs> played those quotes from Trump at the beginning of, of this little intro, the United States is taking a much tougher stance. I, I've been at the Halifax Security Conference uh, in, in the last couple of days, and uh, China was on the agenda, but it wasn't the whole agenda at all. But what happened here was China hijacked just about every panel. Clearly, there has been a tremendous mood shift in the last year or two. One of the big things is the Hong Kong protests, Why people are paying attention in a way, I guess because so many uh, Canadians, Americans, Europeans have been on holiday there. That is getting them far more worked up than the uh, horrible situation the Uyghur Muslim minority face in China or the longstanding mistreatment of the Tibetan Buddhist uh, minority in, in China. Mm. And now uh, there's a tremendous focus on what do we do about China? What does Canada do about China? And we have a new foreign affairs minister, Philippe uh, Francois, uh, Francois Philippe uh, Champagne. Champagne. Yeah. And he, he uh, a couple of years ago, only two years ago, was giving an interview praising, in China, praising the Chinese government for its stability. And it reminded me, Roy, of what our Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, had to say seven years ago when he was in opposition, and that was that he admired the basic uh, dictatorship of China. So Canada has these comments out there in trade groups, uh, uh, in Nova Scotia, they've been over 
to China, trying to get deals at the same time as they've kidnapped a couple of civilians. They put this uh, ban on Canadian uh, canola. Uh, they are now allowing in uh, some pork products again, but but they banned them pretty much as well. Uh, China behaves very badly towards uh, Canada, and Canada's trying through the tourism ministry visiting there and all kinds of things to show that we're still a friend. And this is, in diplomacy, that's not the way you're supposed to react. If somebody pokes you in the eye, you don't rush out there and hug them. And that's the worry that that's what Canada is doing. And it's going to make us an outlier with our allies. And, and we had better uh, figure out a strategy. Yeah, and, you know, so we have Mr. Champagne, who, as you point out in your piece and your commentary, is a bit of a fanboy for China. We have, uh, as you said, Justin Trudeau admiring China's basic dictatorship. And then we have Jean Chrétien, uh, the two-term, three-term prime minister of Canada, who has uh, spent a lot of time, done a lot of business in China, and is also arguably a fanboy for for China. So this country has got to put on the brakes and stand up. Well, that's exactly what I feel, and I think there's a consensus. This is one of those rare issues, Roy, where I think the Canadian politicians are behind uh, the Canadian public uh, by a long way. Uh, polls show now 60-70% of Canadians are very leery of us having a warmer or closer relationship with China. It's pretty clear Canadians have their doubts, but the Liberals especially, but the Conservatives too, uh, still want to go through this thing about China and trade. And, of course, there are tremendous opportunities for trade. But if the West could develop a common strategy about how to deal with China, then China would have to deal in trade with all of us anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I think we'd all get much better deals. But they pick us off one by one. And th- that's what they're doing with Canada right now. And when China kicks us, we do rush back and try to show them, well, it's as if we're jumping up and down and saying, see me, see me, I really like you. <laughs> and this is not a, a very smart, clever uh, foreign policy. No. And there are security implications, too, Huawei and, and espionage. Well, exactly. And, and, and you know, Matthew... in our universities. Yeah, and, and uh, the Trump administration, representative of the Trump administration, uh, National Security Advisor, just warned Canada to watch out about Huawei and call it a Trojan horse. And, uh, and so the Americans clearly are concerned about the relationship that Canada has or Canada's leaders appear to have with China. We have about 30 seconds left. Do you see any real change that's going to come out of the Trudeau uh, government? There will be change. I am absolutely convinced that we have to be kicked in the teeth a few more times. But I think it is inevitable, whether it's the Trudeau government or the government that follows, we are going to have to smarten up on China. My fear is may come too late. It may already be too late. But the world is awakened to this. I think we should take the lead from Australia, which is even more dependent on Chinese trade than Canada, and start resisting China much more than we do. It it is what is going to dominate every conversation for this entire century. Matthew, I always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you so much. The uh, commentary is Canada's new foreign minister must figure out how to deal with China by Matthew Fisher on Twitter, mfisheroverseas. Look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Roy. All the best. Matthew Fisher. Um, I was looking at a photograph myself, and I find it very, very disturbing. It's extremely disturbing. It's a globalnews.ca. 
And uh, the headline is, Have Headlines on Violence Against Women Changed in 30 Years? Can you tell from newspaper headlines alone which issues of violence women were grappling with in 1989 versus 2019? And there's a photograph of a woman, just her face. And it's clear that she's uh, been subjected to violence. And I, I've looked at that photograph now all day long. And I just find it so viscerally, viscerally disturbing. Um, this year marks 30 years since the massacre at Cold Polytechnic in Montreal, December 6, 1999. And uh, how has violence against Canadian women changed in the uh, last 30 years? How much safer are Canadian women than they were 30 years ago? There's a, a series on uh, Global News on television and online that started, and it'll continue until the 6th of December. And I'm not going to say any more about it than that because Jane Gerster joins me now. And uh, Jane is a national online journalist with Global News, and she's very much part of this series. And Jane, I, uh, I'll tell you, that photograph, that's, that's a haunting photograph. It speaks... It speaks volumes, and it, is, it rings alarm bells. I, I can't tell you the impact that photograph is having on me. It is a really, it's a really hard photo to look at. It is. That's for sure. Thank you for joining us, and tell us, please, what you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, well, a group of my colleagues and I sort of got together uh, several months ago, knowing this anniversary was coming up, um, and really wanting to capture the nuances and the spectrum of violence against women across this country and figure out, you know, whether or not any of the the lessons learned, for lack of a better term, from what happened at a Cole Polytechnique, you know, have have been learned. And we, you know, that's it's not it's not it's been a really hard to do series because it's not great it's not great news. No, it isn't. And each day you are revealing one of the women who lost her life that day yes. 30 years ago on December the 6th, uh, 1989. And, and I was looking at the, uh, the photographs of the, of the women and, and reading their, about their lives. And that, that is also extremely disturbing, as it should be. It should disturb people. It should make you think. I'm looking at the story uh, from you that uh, that's on globalnews.ca. Although the homicide rate has gone down, the overall levels of violence against women have not changed substantially in decades. While 164 women were killed in 2018, compared to 245 in the year of the massacre, that still amounts to one woman every 60 hours. Yeah, unfortunately, we still have uh, a pretty high rate in terms of women who are murdered, and you know the the rest of the statistics are pretty are are pretty hard to get. I mean, we have one woman, you know, one woman every week being killed by a partner, and then we have you know one in three women are going to be sexually harassed or experience sexual abuse over the course of their lifetime. That's that one. That one just sticks in your, it sticks in my brain, and particularly now we know we're talking about Epstein, we're talking about uh, Prince Andrew, we're talking about uh, what what they did, and, and this uh, Lolita Express, and, and all these powerful individuals who were who were part of that miserable crew, and and then you, you you consider that one of every three women. So if there are three women in your life, statistically, one of them has been sexually harassed. 
Yep. Yep. And I mean, I mean, this series was very much born out of, you know, it's it's all women handling these stories, with the exception of one story that's looking at, you know, the question of rehabilitating rehabilitating abusers. Um, you know, and for all of us, this is something that you know someone has experienced, someone that we know has experienced, or that we have experienced, and that's really kind of our goal here is to illustrate that there is a spectrum. This isn't just, you know, about about those major cases or about a high-profile murder. It's also about, you know, sexual harassment or someone saying something inappropriate at work or, you know, um, what we're teaching our kids about the language around how to refer to women and how to refer to themselves. So it's really, we're trying to get at a lot. It's also been a political football, hasn't it? I mean, of course, there's... There's been calls. There's been calls for a national action plan to deal with violence against women for, for years now. I mean, the UN wanted every country to have one by 2015, um, and you know the NDP brought forward that Stephen Harper's government shot that down. You know, Trudeau came in the first time and said, "Okay, we're going to have a, a gender-based. You know, we're going to have a federal strategy." And then the UN Special Rapporteur said, "This isn't good enough," and and a big part of that boils down to we need we need that action plan that actually looks at everything together and figures out how one service is impacting another and where the underfunding is and, you know, how everything kind of plays together. And, you know, uh, in his re-election campaign, Trudeau did promise a national action plan and $30 million for it. But, you know, as, as you're aware, there's so much going on in the news right now, and we just haven't really had any details yet about what, what you know, what and when we might expect from Yeah, that. just reading that sentence, while Trudeau's party promised $30 million for a national action plan, during the most recent election, the pledge came without many details or a timeline. Mm-hmm. So it, it, does, it must have details. It must have a timeline. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we are all going to take away something. Uh, and and I'm, I'm just thinking of, of, uh, of, of families where there is violence and, and women in the families are assaulted attacked um i i hope i really hope that that they get some something out of this i'm just shocked by that photograph jane i absolutely am shocked i looked at it again just now i wish i hadn't because i know i can't get a coherent thought into my brain because it's such a disturbing photograph no it is really it is really heartbreaking and i mean that's that's sort of the crux of this is a lot of this is information that we know at least you know, tendentially in our in our brains, but it's it's very hard to then also actually confront it. And I mean, it's just it's very hard to go from the statistics to those images because yeah. you know it's it's easy to tune out statistics here and there, and and that's sort of what we want really to get at with this is to tell you those stories and show you those photos that will stick in your brain while also pairing them with you know the heart wrenching you know details like you know, of the thousands of women who need to go to women's shelters to escape violence, often with their children, hundreds are turned away each night, often because there just isn't enough space. Yeah. Um, so, so remind us, please, what is it uh, viewers are going to see? What, 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 what are you doing night after night? Just remind us of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have those bios from from the women, the, the the fourteen young women who were killed at a coal polytechnique, and there'll be one bio out every day until December sixth. Our official launch is tomorrow, which is the national or is the International Day for the Eradication of Violence Against Women, 
And that starts with a look at uh, the chronic underfunding of, of women's shelters across this country. And then the series will be looking at, you know, um, the violence faced by trans and non-binary people. They'll be looking at the violence specific to Indigenous women and girls. They'll be looking at programs that try to rehabilitate men who are abusers. And it'll also be looking at what we're teaching the next generation about violence, about gender-based violence. So there's really there's really a lot that we're going to be covering um, and the goal is, you know, to try and get people to think about how all of this, you know, plays together and how, you know, we do need to come together and, and, and really think about how we are tackling this issue as a country and as a society. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All the best. Jane uh, Gerster, uh, online journalist for Global News. If you look at that photograph, it is... It is absolutely, it's just, it's so disturbing. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.